Hello, welcome to season three of The Plants We Eat. I'm Jeff Gilman from the UNC Charlotte Botanical Gardens, and with me today and every day is... Cindy Proctor. And today we're going to talk about the fabulous, spectacular, wonderful soy. Do you love soy? Yeah. I love soy, too. After soy everything. But before we start talking about soy, so a couple days ago, I got something in the mail, and it was from uh, apparently a fan. And I was wondering where this food came from. And I started writing to everybody in my family. And I got through basically everybody before I called my sister because I never would think that my sister would listen to the show because, you know, she's a little sister. So, you know, she tries to avoid me as much as possible. (laughs) But it turns out that she does listen to the show. She lives up in uh, New Jersey. And she actually happens to love lychee, lychee, which we talked about a few weeks ago. Really? And she sent me these candies, these lychee candies, which are actually her husband's uh, favorite candy. Her husband is from Hyderabad uh, in India. And, of course, we talked about lychees being pretty common in India. So I brought these with me today so that you all could try. So give them them a shot. Cindy, see what you think. Pretty good. Isn't that pretty good? Michael, what what do you think? It's pretty good. It's a gummy bear type. It's a gummy bear with a a lychee taste. Oh, I like it better, actually, than the... Hard candy. Mm-hmm. And even, I didn't care for the fruit in the can that much. It was okay. It was a weird texture for mm-hmm. me. But the, I thought this, the flavor was good, but it was a weird, yeah. I could eat a few of these happily. I could I could do. I already yes. have, Thank actually. your sister for me. <laughs> thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll let her know. Okay. She's listening, so okay. you can tell her right now. Well, thank you very much for the candy. And now, before we actually begin talking about soy, I have brought the quintessential soy snack. Edamame. Edamame. So edamame, you know, you brought a dry package. Have you ever eat them, uh, ate them frozen and uh, thawed them? I've actually had them in uh, Japanese restaurants served as a, as an appetizer. We have too. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you that um, I'm not wild about them. I love them. Do you really? I do because they're they're kind of something I can take and be well nourished if on the go. Well, they're definitely a very healthy snack. Let me, let me try one. I have not tried these yet. The the dry ones are okay. You know, they're not that by the time you eat half of a, this little bag that you brought us, the dry roasted ones, mm-hmm. you're kind of, uh, you're kind of done with it. Now, if you buy them frozen and mm-hmm. you thaw them like in your lunch bag and eat mm-hmm. them for lunch as part of your lunch or the whole lunch, they're pretty satisfying. Really? Yeah. Okay. Or in your salads. People put them in their salads mm-hmm. too. All right, well, way. now, Michael, what do you think? Good, bad, indifferent. You'd eat them if you're served them, but that's about it. Oh, I'll put these in my salad. You, would you really? I would. This okay. is good. Well, they have the fresh, the frozen ones in your salad that's more like a lima bean. If you are a health conscious person, then soybeans are definitely the way to go. Um, so the reason that so- soy is so spectacular is that there are nine essential amino acids. There's actually many more amino acids than that, but there are nine essential amino acids. And soy is really the only plant that contains all nine in decent quantities. If you're into bodybuilding, then the type of protein that you use, if you're a vegetarian or a vegan, is actually a soy protein. And that soy protein will actually uh, have a little bit of uh, methionine added because soy is a little bit low in methionine, not super low, but a little low in methionine. So you usually have that added. In terms of a protein source in the plant kingdom, in terms of a single plant, there's really no equal. No, it's excellent. Plus, I mean, it has calcium, fiber, iron, magnesium. I mean, it's got it's got a lot going for it for just a little bit. And I'm, we're talking about, you know, how big is this? I mean, a handful. There's a handful. Yeah. About an ounce. If you have 100 grams of soybeans, 
35 grams of that is protein, more, more or less, of course. Wow. Which is really incredible, the amount of protein in this thing. You may be wondering where soy comes from, or maybe you figured it out based on soy sauce and so forth. It does come from Asia, and we're really talking about China, Korea, and Russia. And there's actually more than one species of soybean, although there's really only one that's cultivated to any great extent. Soybean's an annual crop, which means you grow a lot of it out in the fields. There are actually some different species, which are perennials. Again, we don't see them very much, but there are a few perennial soybeans that you will find in very warm regions, tropical regions. I forgot right off the bat, the person who suggested this to us is Jennifer Carter. Jennifer, I had a lot of fun with this one. So thank you for sending it on. I did too, because you kind of forget when something's so mainstream in your diet that uh, it, it to talk about it. Exactly. exactly. So thank you very much. We've been using soybeans, and by we, uh, again, it was first used in Asia for about 3,000 years. It's been used, again, primarily because it's such an incredible source of protein. The fascinating thing to me is where would you think the center of soybean production would be in the world? Uh, you'd think China, right? Or maybe India, perhaps possibly Russia. Well, I would because it does require a, a good amount of heat to produce well, even though they bred varieties to grow in temperate zones. Right. I mean, we could, you know, when I was up in Minnesota, you could grow it in Minnesota. It wasn't an amazing crop up there, but you could grow it. It's amazing it. here in the South. It is. Yeah. It does really, really well. Believe it or not, China does not grow most of their soybeans. China's actually a, a huge importer of soybeans. The reason for that is that it takes a whole lot of water to produce soybeans, and in the northern region of China, there just isn't that much water to be used. Not that they don't produce soy, because they do, but they end up being a net importer of soy. They're also a net importer of soy because they need so much for their increased production of meat animals. China is making a huge move into modernization recently, their whole country. And part of that is increasing the amount of protein in their diet. And when I say protein, I don't necessarily mean plant protein. I mean animal protein. And the way that you get animals to grow fast is to feed them, well, a lot of protein. <laughs> right. uh, you know, protein makes protein. Nitrogen makes nitrogen. So they feed them a lot of soy. In fact, if you look worldwide, it's roughly 70% of soybean production goes to animals, goes to animal feed. If you look at what we typically feed animals, it's industrialized. It's mix of corn and soy. That's what we feed animals to get them to grow really fast. The corn provides the sugar and carbs. The soybeans provide the protein. And because soy is this complete protein, we don't have to add a lot on top of that. So is there any more natural than, you know, dog food? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Livestock feed is what I would Livestock feed, yeah. exactly. <laughs> It, uh, I found this interesting number, at least I thought it was interesting. To produce just a ton of soybeans, it actually takes about 1,500 tons of water, which is a large amount. Well, they do need a lot of water, but they need water specifically at three different stages. I don't know if you found that to be true. but Go ahead. First, they, uh, they need water like most plants, right as they're erupting from the soil, if you're germinating the seed. Well, I mean, mm -hmm. Most plants need that. But when they're developing the pods and when they're flowering, they need specific three stages, flowering and um, pod development, I would be more concerned with. You know, that's really interesting because I think of that often from a fill standpoint for fruits, but I don't usually think of it in soybean. But now that you're talking about it, it makes perfect sense. For harvesting of soybeans, you know, we just ate edamame. It's probably worth mentioning that edamame 
is actually harvested prior to the time that it's actually considered ripe. The seed is mature, but it hasn't yet dried down. In nature, most seeds go through a drying period where water is pulled out of the seed so that it can go through the winter more easily. If there's water in the seed, then when it freezes, all the cells rupture. If the plant pulls water out, then it can handle the winter a lot better. So did you go through all the incredible different ways that you can eat soy? I actually know, but I mean, there's soy sauce. I mean, there's, we, there's you soy know, sauce. soy sauce. And by, let's, let's back up. Let's okay. talk about soy sauce okay. first. Okay. Because this is, this was like my Saturday. I think Suzanne was like really upset with me because, you know, I'm spending my Saturday looking up all the ways that you can use soy. <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs> you look at soy sauce, it's a combination of soybeans, wheat, or some other grain, and uh, salt, usually a salt water brine. And then what they do is they actually ferment it with basically a mold, and then they serve it. And this was actually originally created as a way to stretch salt. I saw that. Isn't that interesting? It, it's, it's fascinating. Clever. I, I was, you know, reading all these different papers on it, and it, it really struck me that, you know, this is a vehicle to make salt last for, for a longer period of time. Soy sauce is approximately 2,000 years old. And then, of course, there's soy milk. Now, soy milk has been around for quite a time. There's a too. lot of controversy about soy milk, and I have a feeling it's because of GMO uh, issues. I think that you're right, in part, but it's also because of something I'd like to talk about later, which is estrogen. Soy milk has also been around for 2,000 years, about the same amount of time as soy sauce. They think soy sauce predates it, but not by that much. And then the one that I like best is tofu. Are you a tofu fan? Um, No, but I have eaten it when it's prepared well, I enjoy it. Yes. And I, I'm not one that can prepare it well. So <laughs> I like it. I like it in my curries. I love a good Indian curry with, with tofu. Have you had tofu egg salad? No. It's a, there isn't any eggs in it. Oh, but really? it's created, it, you know, it's, but it tastes just like it. Because uh, tofu, a... of course, is wonderful. It absorbs, you know, any spice you put in it to mimic whatever flavor you'd like. It's really good. Well, now that you're mentioning it, I really, really want to try it because it sounds... <laughs> I'll make <laughs> sounds you some. Really I'll, I'll, I'll make you some. Sounds good to me. You'll bring it in next show and we'll, uh, okay. we'll, we'll taste it. Okay. All right. Sounds great. With soy, you can also make, of course, tofu. And the way that you make tofu, it's actually made similar to the way that you make cheese, which is to say that essentially you take the soy milk and then you add a coagulant, which pulls the proteins out and makes them into a solid mass. So the things that they have used for coagulants over time is just fascinating. The one that used to be most common, the one that's been used historically, is calcium sulfate, which is the same as gypsum. Which actually, if you guys know what drywall is, not that you should go take your drywall and dump it into soy milk. That's a bad idea. <laughs> but uh, drywall is actually made of gypsum. That is what they used to use to coagulate it. But the other thing that they use, uh, they'll use various acids, but they can also use uh, enzymes. And the enzyme that they use is, uh, there are a few, but the interesting one is papain. You may remember papain as the interesting enzyme that we discussed when we were talking about papaya. So the enzyme from papaya that, remember, could actually eat your esophagus apart in a worst-case scenario can actually also coagulate soy milk to make tofu. Nature is cool. It is. It is cool. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, one other coagulated soy protein, which people may not be as familiar with but is definitely worth trying, is tempeh. Have you tried uh, tempeh? No. Okay. Uh, basically, it's cooked soy and then they uh, ferment it after it's cooked. And usually it also includes some other things, often wheat or something like that. It's actually quite tasty, but it has different tastes, has kind of a nutty flavor. 
all these things are, are basically ways to transfer the soy's uh, protein. But it's important to remember that when you eat soy, you should not eat soy raw. Uh, even edamame here is cooked. And the reason is that there are actually anti-nutrients in soy. Well, it's, it's, you can't properly di digest the pods that, that you have picked right away. You have to blanch them. Is that what you were getting ready to talk about? I was getting talk, ready to talk about different ways to heat them, but okay. you can talk about the blanching. Well, the blanching is just heating them up in boiling water, mm -hmm. removing them right away and putting them in cold water. And then they're ready to eat. Right, it's, and it's the same thing. And it's actually can, an ice bath water. It's not just cold, but yeah. You can roast them. You can blanch them, like you said. If you have the soy milk, well, if you blanch first, you're fine. But if you take soy milk without that, then you'll need a heat treatment at some point. And when you remove the beans from the pods, I mean, using the pods as compost is like rich compost because you have all those nutrients that are in the pods. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I, that excites me. Well, that's nourishing I mean, the garden. Soybeans were introduced into the United States in 1764 by Samuel Bowen. He was a seaman for the East India Company. For you history people, you know the East India Company. Um, he planted them out in 1765. They were successfully cultivated. In 1769, there was actually a patent for soy sauce to be produced in the U.S., which was then transported to the U.K. So kind of neat that we've had soy here for that long. But cultivation wasn't really heavy until the early 1900s. And a big reason that cultivation became heavy because of one of my heroes, George Washington Carver. We've talked about him before on this show. But the reason that I'm so fond of him is because he was certainly a, a capable scientist. But you know what he did better than anybody? We've talked about this. He transferred information from the science world to the public. I love that. And yeah. he's, he was amazing at it. And it's the reason we celebrate him today. And I mean, that's what, that's what we try and do on this show. So anyway, uh, in 1904, he actually spent some serious time talking about how by planting soybeans out in our fields, we could enrich the soil and make our soil better for other crops. Well, it fixes nitrogen. Exactly. I mean, this is, this is a great crop. It pulls nitrogen from the air, puts it into the ground, and bang. And nitrogen is everywhere in the air. That gas is, 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 right. is plentiful. It just can't be used by plants except for plants like this, nitrogen-fixing plants. What this means is that in terms of fertilizer, it's not that fertilizer doesn't help soybean. I'm not going to say it's not necessary at all because it helps, but you don't need it at nearly the same level that you need it for so many other crops. That's why farmers do a corn-soybean rotation, because by doing corn-soybean rotation, they make money on both crops. But not only that, it takes less input, especially when they get to the to the corn and builds and up. And fertilizer is expensive, and some of it is, is not replaceable. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now, planting soybeans, you don't have to be a commercial farmer to plant them. But what you do need is at least three to four months of warm weather. And they do the best in the heat. There have been cultivars bred to, or I should say varieties bred for temperate zones, like I mentioned mm -hmm. earlier. Right. And um, it will take about 150 days to flower. So, you know, I said three, I should really say four to five months of warm weather because you'll harvest them in the fall. So that's for a normal soybean. Yes. The ones that we would have up north obviously don't have that long of a growing season. Right. Now, um, you'll get about 50 pods per plant. That's not bad. That's not bad. You know, that's, uh, that's probably what how much was needed to create this bag here of edamames. You know, I actually think it's worth it to grow this if you are into edamame. 
fresh edamame some people are really into, like yourself. <laughs> so worth having. And if one plant will produce 50 pods, how many plants do I need? Just a few. Hey, there you go. Just a few. Now, to harvest them, you would do this around September, mm-hmm. and you would do this when the pods are green, and then the, the seeds inside are, well, which they're the beans, that are inside, they're plump and fully grown. It's really a fun project for your kids, you know, or to do at home. Uh, you know, some of the other stuff we've talked about is short of Maybe not impossible. No, nothing's impossible, but it's hard. It's challenging, a, but yes. this is pretty easy uh, to do. All right, now, before we leave soybeans, we've got to dispel a myth, and that's the myth of estrogen in soybeans. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. That was a big deal around the time of my pregnancy with my kids. Yeah, it's, it's something that I spent a decent amount of time looking at various papers. There is no doubt that soybeans do have contained within them phytoestrogens, in other words, plant-derived estrogens. The question is, do these have any impact on humans? There's a lot of human hormone analogs in nature. They're, They're just around. The question is whether they actually do anything. I read paper after paper, which had either modest or no effects, some with more effects than others. One that I saw that was pretty interesting was that in, in older people, soybean along with exercise has the potential to help keep their bones strong, potentially their muscles strong. But honestly, after reading a bunch of papers, I was still kind of confused. And then I read this article from the nutrition source from the Harvard School of Public Health, and this really summarized the way that I felt after reading all these papers. So I want to actually quote them here. So again, this is the nutrition source from the Harvard School of Public Health, and this particular part of the article is called The Takeaway. Soy is a unique food that is widely studied for its estrogenic and anti-estrogenic effects on the body. Studies may seem to present conflicting conclusions about soy, but this is largely due to the wide variation in how soy is studied. Results of recent population studies suggest that soy has either a beneficial or a neutral effect on various health conditions. Soy is a nutrient-dense source of protein that can safely be consumed several times a week and is likely to provide health benefits, especially when eaten as an alternative to red and processed meat. And after reading these papers, that's exactly the way I felt. There may be some very minor negative, but overall, the positive effects of soy greatly outweigh any negative effects. So I felt really good about it. When I did see a negative effect, it was usually correlated with incredibly high intake of soy that I can't, you know, people were like eating only soy three times a day and that was their only source of anything. Nothing's good to eat three times well, a day. Well, ex- exactly. <laughs> right. So that's, that's, okay. that's the way I ended up feeling. Okay. Well, that's good. That's good. So today I wanted to clear up a myth. And, and this myth is that Jethro Tull <laughs> is a musical group. <laughs> I mean, you know, I love Aqualung as much as the next guy. So what does soy have to do with Jethro Tull? Well, I'm going to get there. Okay. I'm going to get there. Okay, it is a band. And okay, I do love the band Jethro Tull. I do Tull. too. And I knew that it wasn't a name, that it oh, was God. a band. Yeah, okay. okay. The band Jethro Tull is named after the real Jethro Tull. And if you're wondering where the idea of plowing fields came from, well, the idea of plowing fields really came from Jethro Tull. Now, I say that fields have been plowed before. It's not like Jethro Tull invented the whole idea of plowing, but he created seed drills and plows and really tried to put science to the plow and to tilling fields. 
He believed that plowing, though, was for a very specific reason, which we now know today to be false, and that is that he believed the nutrients that a plant got from being planted in the field came from the soil itself. So tilling the field, you're actually tilling up the field to mash up the soil so that the plant could eat the soil. He believed that the plant roots had little tiny mouths that actually literally ate the soil. Okay, yeah, you laugh, but, you know, back then, it really wasn't that strange. And it, yeah, I, I agree, I agree. The truth is, what tilling the soil does is that it makes nutrients more available. It lets more oxygen down into the soil and allows nitrogen to be, particularly nitrogen, but actually some other stuff too, to be released more easily so that plants could grow better. Nowadays, we're kind of opposed to plowing because plowing does, especially over time, it really destroys the structure of the soil. So we're not into plowing nowadays. But during his period of time, agriculture truly flourished because plowing enabled plants to grow much more quickly than they would without plowing. So neat stuff. And now you know who Jethro Tull is. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, there, and, and the original Death, Jethro Tull, I do not believe, played the piccolo. Okay. Now you know. Okay. I, he may have. <laughs> I, I, I love that, actually. I lo- <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. This has been The Plants We Eat. Next week, we are going to be talking about Millet. 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 I have birds in my mind. Millet's a, no doubt it's a bird food. That's right. But not always. Nope. Not always. Hey, we're going to eat some different types of uh, millet foods next week. This has been The Plants We Eat. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of the UNC Charlotte Botanical Gardens, along with College of Liberal Arts and Sciences and the Isle Group. We look forward to talking to you next week.